Welcome to the podcast Benzo Tired. I'm your host, Naftal Benesti, and I'm Dutch. Join me on my journey into the world of benzodiazepines, withdrawal, bind, and more. Disclaimer, always consult your physician for medical advice. This is episode 60, Dr. Mark Horowitz, author of the Maudsley Deprescribing Guidelines, and today it's December 12th, 2023. This episode is in collaboration with Emma Saunders from the Unfiltered Podcast and BeatingTheBenzo.com. In this episode, Dr. Mark Horowitz, MBBS, PhD, has lived experience being harmed by antidepressants. He is the author of a handbook on how to safely stop psychiatric drugs, called the Maudsley Deprescribing Guidelines. It will be published in the UK and Europe on the 7th of March 2024 and in the US on the 8th of April. It could be pre-ordered now from Amazon and other booksellers. The handbook is written for psychiatrists, general practitioners, nurses, pharmacists, or anyone involved in the care of people with mental health conditions, as well as interested members of the public. It may be the perfect gift for your prescriber, and outlines step-by-step instructions for how to safely stop all commonly used antidepressants, benzodiazepines, gabapentinoids, and Z-drugs, with fast, moderate, and slow schedules and how to modify these for an individual. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Benzo Tired. Hi, Mark. Hi, Emma. So, Mark, what inspired you to write the book? Well, uh, thanks for having me on, Naftal. Nice to to talk to you. Um, uh, Basically, what inspired me to write the book was my own experience coming off medication. So, uh, like, one in six... Uh, people in the Western world. I was on an antidepressant. I've been on it since medical school. Um, And when I tried to come off at the end of my PhD uh, in London, I had a horrendous time. I uh, had trouble sleeping. I started having panic attacks for the first time in my life that lasted for hours and hours and hours. Uh, I took up running because I it gave me a slight amount of, of reprieve from that anxiety. I ran until my feet bled. Got so bad, I eventually thought I can't keep living like this. Um, and I eventually went back up on my drug to, to, to relieve my symptoms. Uh, and in that process, I had you know looked around frantically to try to work out what was going on with me. And... You know, I read academic articles. I was at the end of my PhD. Then I was surrounded by the leading lights of psychiatry um, uh, at my at, at, at King's from Oxford and Cambridge coming through. And they all their papers said withdrawal effects are not a big deal. It takes a couple of weeks to, to get off. The symptoms can last for a week or two, and they're mostly mild. And you know, that was nothing like what I had experienced, you know, I'd essentially been through a life-threatening experience, the the worst thing that has ever happened to me. And I found that that experience reflected in in online forums, in places like Surviving Antidepressants and Facebook groups. You know, at first I found a few people with similar experiences and then dozens and then hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands. And I came to realise that there was complete disjoint between what I had been taught in, in my training about withdrawal symptoms being minor, although they were be- it was barely covered in my training, and what was actually occurring to people out in the world, what experts were saying. Um, a few years on, as I came off, I, I sort of learned from these groups actually to come off the drugs more slowly. We helped to change, we helped to influence guidelines to some degree in England. There's been a little bit more awareness, not that much more awareness. Um, and people were still experiencing what I experienced, which was being told to come off their drugs quickly by doctors, not finding recognition of the issues that they experienced, everything being seen through the prism of relapse, that issues coming off the drugs must mean you need the drugs because you're unwell without them. Uh, I started a clinic in my hospital in Northeast London to help people come off antidepressants, and then I rewired it to be benzodiazepines and Z drugs and gabapentinoids. And I did that in response to 
people emailing me after I wrote papers about how to stop antidepressants. So before that paper about antidepressants, I'd written 15 papers and I'd received, I think in total one email from people asking me about that work. When I published a paper on how to stop antidepressants, I received about seven and a half thousand emails. Oh my in, God. In months and uh, after I published that. And I realized there was this huge demand for people to be given help to come off their drugs safely and also to deal with the consequences of them coming off uh, unsafely from other doctors. Um, our clinic was never greatly supported by the hospital we worked at. It wasn't very easy to expand. We're still trying to expand it. Um, and so I, I ended up lecturing a lot to different doctors, GPs and psychiatrists in England and around the world who were to differing degrees receptive to this message about withdrawal and coming off more slowly. At some point at a meeting that I went to, someone said it would be very useful to have this written down so that doctors can see what is a sensible way to take people off their medications. Mm -hmm. And that was actually in 2019 and, and very naively, <laughs> uh, I'd like to punch myself in the head for what I said next. I said, oh, that's, that's no, no issue. It'll take me a few weeks to put it together. Uh, I'll do it. Uh, and it took me, it took me three years. Uh, and what I thought would be a few dozen pages turned into probably about a thousand pages that we've divided into two volumes. And so, you know, this book, this first volume is on how to safely stop antidepressants, benzodiazepines, Z drugs, and gabapentinoids. And it's essentially, you know, it, it, it's a step-by-step -step manual for people to be able to stop any commonly used drug in Europe, Australia, America, the UK, Canada, uh, outlining what formulations of the drug exist, what dose reductions make sense, how to estimate for a particular patient what rate they could go at and how to modify that in response to the symptoms that they have, sections about managing the complications of coming off the drugs, you know, mostly about withdrawal effects, whether acute or protracted. Uh, it's got sections on PSSD. It's got sections on the long-term consequences of coming off benzodiazepines, including mentioning bind. So it tries to cover all the different issues people have um, coming off these drugs and how to manage them. Uh, you know, I, I think there's probably a lot more research that needs to be done to clarify every point in the book, because in some areas there's there's no research at all, which we've been you know very clear about what is based on good research, what is based on a few case studies, and what is just based on clinical practice. And so it's 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 not a perfect book. But but we also recognise people are coming off these drugs every day. You can't wait for perfect understanding before giving people a guide on what to do now. Uh, and so that's that's why we we set about writing the book. And what's the second volume? So the second volume will be on essentially the psychiatric drugs that weren't covered in the first one, and they are antipsychotics, mood stabilisers, um, uh, stimulants. And we're also including opioids, which aren't traditionally psychiatric drugs, but often psychiatrists are involved in stopping them. Right, mm -hmm. right. Okay. Um, let me go to my next question. Um, well, you already told us a lot about the book. Is there anything else that you could touch on on the book? I, I'm personally wondering, like, um, of, of course, we've got the Ashton Manual. We've got some things around Bind. How was it like to get all of the information about benzos and antidepressants and everything? What did you find in your research? So... Um, so look, the book is, it, I guess in some ways it is like the Ashton manual, except that it's, it's a little bit, um, so it, it, it does two, two, two other things. One, it covers more medications. So it started off being about antidepressants, but now you know, it covers all these different classes. And two, my sense from people is that the Ashton manual is often too quick. So I think the Ashton manual is a very useful resource. You know, uh, up until now, if people asked me what 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 guide should they use, I'm very very uh, quick to suggest the Ashton Manual. She she keeps repeating in it that 12 to 18 months, you know, is the period it might take people to come off benzodiazepines. In my experience, for long term users that have trouble, that is very quick. 
I think I think maybe to doctors listening that will sound absurd because they have in their mind that a few weeks, you know, mm. is slow enough, and twelve to eighteen months is even slower. But in in my experience, there are some people that have taken three, four, five, six years to come off their drugs um, in a way that's tolerable to them. You know, personally speaking, I am you know I am five years into a taper off multiple drugs. Been a few particular factors I've been working during that period of time I haven't gone as fast as I could have but it's not absurd to me that some people take multiple years not everybody people always jump on me when I say that I'm not saying everyone needs that there are people that can come off there are people that can come off in a few weeks I think I think that should be that should be said um because I you know every doctor will have seen that there are patients that even after long-term use can for reasons that I don't quite understand, come off without too much trouble. So there is a very wide range mm. of, um, of, of, of of speeds people can tolerate. That was a very big dilemma in writing the book because we wanted to try to cover everybody. Mm. You know, if, you, if you'd say to a doctor, well, everyone should take five years to come off, you know, it sounds absurd to them and it probably is, you know, overkill. There's no reason if someone can come off a drug in 18 months or in six months, there's no reason to prolong that so that they're exposed to the drug for longer than they need to be. But having said that, people do need to take five years to come off. You know, there's no there's no point in rushing them and causing them huge trouble. And so one thing we took pains to do with the book is to provide a range of different tapering rates that go from a few weeks to a few years and, and a bit of guidance in how to, to, to work out who is who. And maybe I'll go into that in a bit, a bit of detail because it's a, it's a very key part of the book. You know, if you've been on a drug for a few weeks, uh, you have no tolerance effects to it, um, you probably can come off it in a few weeks for most people. There are exceptions, but most people, you know, who've been on the drugs a short period of time don't need five years to come off. Um, uh, you know, every doctor will have seen people that have been on the drugs for a few weeks throw their drugs in the bin because they decide they don't want them and have no trouble. And yes, there is a small minority of people who just after a few weeks will have developed some tolerance, will have become, you know, will have adapted to the drug, what we call physical dependence, and will therefore need longer to come off. But, but the majority of people won't. Whereas if you've been on a drug for more than 10 years, if the drug is high risk for withdrawal, so I'm thinking of venlafaxine or Effexor for antidepressants, or maybe alprazolam or Xanax for benzodiazepines, then the chance that you're going to need quite a long time, quite a long time to come off it is very high. Most people who are on long-term venlafaxine or alprazolam will take a couple of years or longer to come off the drugs. So I think whilst you can't say with certainty, this person will take six weeks, this person will take three years, in general, there are risk factors that, that put you in the higher or lower risk category. And we try to outline those and, and and probably be obvious to you what they are. It's people who are on these higher risk drugs, people who are on them for longer, who are on them in, in the longer term, uh, people who have evidence of tolerance are going to have more trouble. Um, it's also true that people seem, who seem to have more trouble when they start the drugs, more adverse effects, seem to have more trouble when they stop them. I think something about sensitivity to the drugs. Um, Probably the most important piece of of of, uh, of evidence for for risk is what trouble they've had in the past. So if they've had huge trouble in the past, chances are they're going to have huge trouble in the future. If they've had no trouble in the past, uh, probably they're going to have little trouble in the future. Although having said that, you know there is this phenomenon which I see more and more where people have more and more difficulty as they go on and off the drug several times. So the first time they come off the drugs, it doesn't cause them huge difficulty. And by the time they've gone on and off for various reasons over time, it is harder to come off the fifth time than the first time. And people use the word kindling to describe that. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure about the, the details of it, but I think there's definitely a, a sensitization that occurs from, from multiple exposures to these medications. And so we try based on what exists in the literature, which isn't very much, to try to start to group people into who is higher risk and who is lower risk, so that people are, so that you're trying to balance two things. You know, exposure, you, you want to re, you want to re restrict exposure to the medication. If someone doesn't need it, why, need, why would they need to be on it for an extra few years? 
and the risk of withdrawal effects from coming off too quickly. And for everyone, that balance is slightly different. And we're trying to trying to strike that balance in the book. And then based on that, there's a little bit of a risk calculator for each person, what, what trajectory they're going to go on. And we basically provide a fast, a moderate and a slow schedule or regimen for each drug where people that have less risk factors are going to use the faster one, people with more risk factors are the slower one. And again, we're not saying, we, we say, I think again and again, you know, this is not a set and forget process because ultimately, you know, risk factors are just risk factors. They don't tell you exactly what this person is going to experience. And the most important thing is what does the patient experience? So if, mm. if they say the slow one is too fast, you know, that's, the, that's got to be the main feedback, you know, people's, people's experience of withdrawal effects has got to be the main guiding factor. We're just providing, we're providing a bit of a framework um, to start things. And, and our thinking on that was, if you just say to a clinician, well, you know, go slowly, if they're, if they have lots of risk factors and go fast, clinicians like to have some structure. If you look through medical textbooks and guidelines, they always have flow charts. You know, if blood pressure this, give this medication. If this complication occurs, you know, make this change. They like to have a structure because, you know, with decision-making becomes exhausting. You know, that's, you know, people get decision fatigue. It's confusing. There's a lot of uncertainty. And so our, our aim was to balance flexibility with structure. So we gave, you know, these kind of regimens that are slow, fast uh, and moderate and also ways to modify them to give some structure for doctors to work around. And actually in that, we were very inspired by the Ashton Manual because she goes step by step. This is what, this is what doses to take. Yeah. A little bit of talk about how to make changes, because if you just, I, I think if you, if you say just reduce by 10% a month, uh, it, it is useful. Like it's a, it's a, it's a useful piece of advice. I'm not knocking it, but I think that clinicians generally like to have something a bit more structured to follow. Um, uh, and so that's what we've tried to achieve in the book is, is a, is a kind of balance between uh, a framework to, to, to fit around and some flexibility to modify things to suit an individual patient. Um, and we've also tried to put everything in one place so that it's really a, you know, a one-stop shop so that a doctor will know what formulations are, because some doctors don't even know if there's a liquid available for this drug, you know, mm -hmm. or if you can buy this tablet or if this drug's half-life means you maybe can dose it less regularly. And so we've tried to put every piece of relevant information in one in one uh, section. So if you're tapering off lorazepam or you're tapering off Cymbalta, duloxetine, everything about that drug that you need to know about tapering is there. You know, are the beads stable if you open up the capsule? Uh, is there a liquid version? Are there reasons why you can't make a liquid version? When do you need to swap from a tablet to a to a liquid or use something different? Do tapering strips exist for this particular drug? So that basically for every drug, there's between four and 10 pages that tells you anything that a doctor would need to know or, a, or any prescriber, pharmacist, nurse, uh, anything that they would need to know um, to come off the drug. And in fact, probably enough for a patient to work out what to do as well, because it's got every dose that you need to take what formulations you might use. You know, I, I sometimes wonder whether patients might buy the book either to give to their psychiatrist or GP or or prescriber mm -hmm. or or even, you know, sort of let the prescriber know what they're doing but use but be guided by the book themselves. I mean, it's very much needed and we can only hope that one day this will be into like psychiatrist educations, you know, your book. We can only yeah. hope. You can only hope that they I already know. Amazing! I think it's so amazing that you've done this, Mark. Thank God. <laughs> that's, that's nice of you to say. It's cost me years of my life, and the last yeah. few, the last few strands of hair I have on top of my head. So uh, I know. I I bet. I bet. And you're still going through it as well. Yeah. 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 It's, exactly. It's not. It's not done yet. I, I was thinking. Oh God, this is halfway. I've still got another volume to finish off. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I really like. I think it's amazing that you've done that because. I think it is tricky that the body-led taper, it's called, isn't it, amongst the, the, the community. It's like you've got to listen to your body and then you've got the clinicians that want that structure. 
I think that's what I come up against the whole time. And when I tell them I'm on this tiny dose of lorazepam, they're just like, that's ridiculous. You know, they just can't, they can't fathom it. But actually, so this is just amazing to have that recognition of of how it can take so many years. I mean, I'm I'm also what, what you call polydrug. So I've got, yeah, I've, I've been tapering for two years now. I probably got a couple more left and who knows how long. So it's like, good to know, good to, good to get that out there. Yeah. So, so, I mean, we, so part of it is exactly to make this more sensible for doctors. So what I have found mm -hmm. as I've, as I've gone around and lectured to different groups of doctors, almost every doctor understands when I show them these graphs, these hyperbolic graphs that I go on about endlessly where small doses have large effects. Mm. They recognize this neuroimaging. I explain to them it's what's called the law of mass action, which basically means when there's not much drug about in the system, every extra milligram has a very large effect. And as you get more and more drug, most of the receptors are occupied. So every extra milligram of drug has less and less effect. And that's mm -hmm. why you get this kind of hyperbolic shape where very small doses have big effects. And most doctors that I show that to understand it, you know, they, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a core pharmacological principle. You know, they're, they're reminded of it from their, from medical school. And it, it makes them understand why small doses have a big effect. And so on mm -hmm. every single drug for lorazepam, for Valium, for um, Alprazolam, we have the graphs from neuroimaging in that section on the drug so that doctors can see why we're explaining this kind of, you know, slightly non-traditional approach to coming off the drugs. So it makes- That's great. That's so That's good. Awesome. I just <laughs> recently learned about the whole GABA receptor occupation because of your um, graphs and that you send, oh, you, you were being interviewed by um, the Facebook warrior uh, Benzo community wow. something. And yes. I, I still keep learning things and I'm such a geek because I like to, well, it concerns me, but I'm like, oh, I didn't mm. know that. Like five milligrams of diazepam would occupy such a kind of like vast amount of receptors. Whereas if you go way higher, you know, like you said, so it was very, very informative. Yeah. Thank you well, for that. It, it is a bit counterintuitive. And, I, you know, I think the reason why doctors are saying things to you, Emma, like, you know, this is ridiculous. You're on a small, you know, they say this is a homeopathic dose. You know, you mm -hmm. just stop this, you know, this must be in your mind is because they don't recognize that relationship until it's shown to them. Mm. Because if you, you know, you're sort of thinking, you know, oh, you're on two milligrams of a drug and you've gone down to one. So of course, going from two to one and one to zero is the same. You know, if you've, you know, you're already halfway there. It, you know, it's a bit counterintuitive until you see these relationships and you think, oh, okay, it does make more sense. Going from one to zero actually is a much bigger change in effect on the brain than going from two to one. And so mm -hmm. I think doctors need to be, you know, primed to understand that. When they do understand it, they're a bit more um, uh, amenable to going slower and understanding why you might have trouble. I mean, I, I don't think it could be, I don't think it could be repeated enough because the problem mm -hmm. is there's been 30 years of education saying, look, you can just, you know, this drugs are pretty, pretty easy to stop. You can just go down in a linear way. So, you know, I'm, I'm a very repetitive, boring person because all I talk about is hyperbolic reductions, doing it slowly because it is new to a lot of people. You know, I, I think it has, I think it's had some small effects in England because it's been a bit repeated in the media, but still most most clinicians I think have not heard about it. Yeah. I still get, I still get emails from patients, you know, every day saying, went to my GP, I asked for a liquid of a version of a drug so I could come up with more slowly. And they said, why would you need that? You can just halve it, halve it again. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I just recently had my GP telling me like, hey, you could just go from five to four, right? I was like, no, I can't. I'll die. Right. <laughs> actually, you, Naftal, you almost went to hospital. You, you had seizures. So it's it's actually a it's mm. almost a life-threatening issue for you. I'm sorry, yeah. what? It's it's almost a life threatening issue for you. It is, yes. Yeah. I will actually probably die if I don't do this correctly. So I'm super careful. I think yeah. it was one of the reasons why I was really kind of keen on educating myself because obviously people don't know about this and was really about saving myself. Yeah, I mean, so this is a bit. I mean, this is sort of you're saying you're a geek, but actually you've been forced to learn about pharmacology in order to get off your drugs safely. I mean, I'm sure if you hadn't had this trouble, you wouldn't be having this conversation or, or interested in, in <laughs> yeah. exactly. Graphs. You're not, you're not that geeky. 
You know, that's again why I wrote this book. You know, I happen to you know, have a degree in this stuff. So it was a bit easier for me to work out how to do things. But other people, you know, who, who are not from this background are being forced to, you know, read textbooks and uh, uh, download graphs. You know, I, I'm, you know, to me, it's a little bit ridiculous. You know, it should be if clinicians are prescribing these drugs, then clinicians should know how to stop these drugs. And so I'm trying to, you know, I, I think, you know, I think, as you can hear me saying, I think peer support groups are fantastic. I would be on my drugs still without them. But really, if clinicians are, are prescribing these drugs, they need to have the training on how to stop them. And yeah. so I hope this book does spread a bit amongst the NHS in England and, and, and other uh, doctors overseas, because, you know, as I'm, I'm sure you're both aware, you know, huge harm is coming to people. People are getting into mm. huge trouble. They're, you know, they're so sick, they're losing jobs, they're losing relationships, and some people are dying from the effects mm -hmm. of withdrawal. So it's really, you know, an urgent need for doctors to be educated on this. And, and the other thing I should say about the book is, you know, it's part of a series called the Maudsley Prescribing Guidelines. That's the sort of um, first book, you know, which is widely used by psychiatrists in in the UK, in Europe and Australia, uh, and also I think in America more and more, you know, and so it's sort of been presented as, you know, part of a, quite an authoritative series in a way which unfortunately I don't think the Ashton Manual ever has been. So I, I've heard of patients saying, I brought the Ashton Manual to my doctor and they laughed at me. It's something I've downloaded from the internet. Yeah. Even, yeah. even though, yeah. you know, there's this famous, highly qualified professor of pharmacology, you know, who worked in a clinic for years, it somehow doesn't, it isn't given the same authority as, as certain textbooks. I'm a bit hoping that my, that the, 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 the more deprescribing guidelines you know, will have that authority with it because it does come from a kind of famous... Fingers crossed. <laughs> yes, yeah. definitely, definitely. Yeah. If it doesn't, then, yeah. then all the copies will be bought by my mother. That's that's, that's what will happen. Oh, no, I'm sure. I, I know so many people will buy it and take it to the doctors and just do their yeah. best to, yeah, to really spread the, the information that's so desperately needed. What are the risks versus benefits to psych medications? Right. Okay. I didn't, I didn't, I actually, I didn't read that in the long list of questions here. Um, that is a pretty big question. You know, that's, the, that's the topic of, of several, uh, several books. Maybe mm. I'll talk about it. I mean, maybe I'll talk about it uh, briefly, mm -hmm. emphasizing the issues about deprescribing. Um, I mean, so. Uh, <laughs> it is a very big question. So, I guess. so yeah. Maybe I'll talk about the risks that are really relevant to what we're talking about here. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a few things, you know, I think drugs have a role to play. There are benefits to some people, you know, benzodiazepines can reduce anxiety. They can, they can reduce insomnia. They have, you know, clear effects after a couple of weeks. Most of those effects wear off over time. So, you know, uh, there's a, there's a great paper that looks at the effect of, benzodiazepines on anxiety levels week by week so put together different studies and at week one there's a very big difference between being given a sugar pill and a benzodiazepine in terms of anxiety and i'm sure anybody that's put a, a volume in their mouth understands that's true by four weeks of treatment with a benzodiazepine or placebo tablets the effect is halved because of tolerance the body adapts to the, the drug and by about 11 weeks from memory, there's almost no difference between a placebo, uh, a sugar pill, and a benzodiazepine. And that's because the effect wears off because of tolerance. And I think people should understand that, that a lot of these effects of different drugs, and that's true for a whole lot of psychiatric drugs, the body adapts. You know, that's what the body does. It's called homeostasis. When we're too hot, when it's too hot outside, we sweat to become cooler. When it's too cold outside, we shiver to become warmer. The body wants to be in the middle. That's what homeostasis is. And it will react to any drug that we take by, by reducing the effect of that drug. Uh, and that's true for benzodiazepines. It's true for antidepressants. It's true for opioids. It's true for Z drugs and gabapentinoids. And because of that, any benefit that people experienced at the beginning is likely to diminish over time. And without getting into it in a big way here, there's a huge debate over whether antidepressants have any beneficial effects at all. There's certainly a very small difference between 
a sugar tablet and an antidepressant on depression scores. Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole lot of reasons why even those small effects might be exaggerated by the way that drug companies conduct the studies. Um, people know they're on the drugs. That can give them a bit of an expectation effect. You know, they're told this drug is going to help you so they feel better. Um, there's also a big issue of how do these drugs help people? And there's this idea that antidepressants and maybe benzodiazepines are fixing something that's causing anxiety or depression. But I think a much more convincing way to understand what is going on is what uh, Professor Joanna Moncrief, a professor of psychiatry in London, describes as the drug-centred model, where what the drugs are really doing are superimposing different effects on thoughts and feelings over people's anxiety and depression. So, for example, uh, when we drink alcohol, we feel calmer, we feel uh, less anxious. In social situations, we might be less inhibited. No one thinks that alcohol is the cure to social anxiety disorder or, or, or affecting the underlying uh, cause of social anxiety. No one thinks social anxiety is caused by an alcohol deficiency. Mm. Uh, and so psychiatric drugs like antidepressants and benzodiazepines might be acting like that, where their effects, which are generally sedating or numbing, are superimposed over existing conditions without really changing the underlying biology or the underlying cause of things. And of course, antidepressants are very commonly numbing. People, people say that they, they feel less at both positive and negative emotions, and that might be true also for benzodiazepines. Uh, because that's the benefits and the risks you know, so I talked about tolerance. So I guess there are risks for all these drugs. Uh, for antidepressants, there are risks to do with sexual function, with weight gain, with, with sleep disturbance, with memory impairments. That's very similar to benzodiazepines, which of course cause, they can cause interdose withdrawal, they can cause more anxiety. I think that's one thing worth emphasizing. You know, the drugs that in the short term can improve anxiety, like benzodiazepines, in the medium and long term can worsen it. So, mm -hmm. you know, we, we know, you know, that's yeah. the process of tolerance uh, and maybe more. So, you know, tolerance can erase the effects of benzodiazepines. And then there is this observation made by, by Heather Ashton that in her clinic, when people came off benzodiazepines and no other intervention, she wasn't a therapist, she wasn't a psychologist, she was a, you know, a hardcore pharmacologist, her intervention was reducing and stopping the drugs. It wasn't in providing counseling. What she observed was people's panic attacks reduced, people's agoraphobia reduced, their anxiety reduced, and their depression reduced. To me, it's an extraordinary finding that with no you know, therapy intervention, you know, no other social intervention that I'm aware of, that she saw reducing anxiety and depression by reducing doses of benzodiazepines, which tells you that being on those benzodiazepines was causing uh, those symptoms. And I see that with patients all the time. They say they went on a benzodiazepine because they were anxious about, you know, job loss, relationship breakdown, all the things that happen in our lives. And it wasn't until they'd been on them for a few months that they started to become afraid to leave the house, you know, what's called agoraphobia, or started having panic attacks. You know, they'd been anxious, but now they're having panic attacks. Something's gotten worse. And that, that worsening, which people have referred to as uh, benzodiazepine-induced hyperanxiogenesis, a bit of a mouthful, which is really just a complicated way of saying being on benzos makes, makes you more anxious. Mm -hmm. It does occur for other drugs. So, for example, opioid-induced hyperalgesia is where opioids cause worse pain in the long term. And there's a whole lot of, of reasons why that might be. It might be that tolerance overshoots so the, the drug has less and less effect and then it goes the other way and becomes and, and causes uh, what, what one uh, psychiatrist refers to as oppositional tolerance. Mm -hmm. Might be because these drugs impair sleep and so they're impairing the normal processes that help us to assimilate information and to, you know, and, and to be emotionally calm. Um, uh, it might be that they also impair therapy because if you can't access uh, your 
you know, your, your negative uh, feelings mm. and think clearly, it might make therapy less effective. So there's all sorts of different hypotheses about why psychiatric, psychiatric drugs in the long term may actually make the conditions that were intended to treat worse. And I certainly, I certainly have seen that. And in fact, I can attest to that myself. I've got to say I'm a much less anxious mm. and depressed person on less drugs than I was on more drugs. So I, you know, I'm, it's interesting to read it in. <laughs> yes, you know, I definitely, uh, I definitely uh, have experienced that in my own life, mm. uh, even above and beyond withdrawal effects. Um, and then, of course, giving sorry, I, I promised a short answer, which is turning into a slightly longer answer. But I'll it's a hard, it's a hard question. But but I'll, I'll wrap it up by saying, um, of course, one of the issues that people are not aware of is the withdrawal effects from these drugs, and of course, that homeostasis sets up withdrawal as your body and brain becomes accustomed to the drug now when you reduce or stop the drug your body and brain misses it and that's why you get withdrawal effects mm. and i think another point we make repeatedly in this textbook is that process of adapting to a drug which causes tolerance and then when you stop it withdrawal effects you know is known in the pharmacological literature as physical dependence sometimes called physiological dependence and it's caused by just repeatedly taking one of these drugs that affects the brain, benzodiazepines, antidepressants, which is distinct from addiction. Because people, when they hear withdrawal, think addiction. You know, when they hear withdrawal, they think abuse, they think misuse, mm. they think naughty people. They think naughty people doing yeah. naughty things. And that leads to, you know, sometimes very dysfunctional responses by doctors to, to withdrawal effects. Because they think, well, this means you must be misusing it. You know, in, in some extreme cases, I've heard of people saying, their doctors say, if, you, if you're having withdrawal effects, you must be abusing the drug. And I don't prescribe to people abusing drugs. And so they, yeah. get, they get abruptly cut off from their drugs. You know, the most dangerous possible thing to do with benzodiazepine. So I think it's very important that this, that this differentiation between physical dependence, which is just the natural process of your brain adapting to a drug taken repeatedly, versus addiction, which is which is physical dependence plus something extra, craving, compulsion, uh, mm -hmm. you know, things that that most people, that the, the vast majority of people using these drugs don't have. Most people, there've been studies in America. I think at least, I think, I think, of people taking benzodiazepines, two percent meet criteria for addiction. In other words, the vast majority of people are using their drugs as prescribed by their doctor, and they're having withdrawal effects because of natural, predictable homeostatic responses to taking the drugs. And it's not a moral issue. It's not about misuse. It's, it's, it's a physiological issue, you know, and the correct response is not to cut people off, but to come off at a rate that's, that's slower that they can tolerate. What is your take on us and us being Emma and I, uh, on long holding our benzodiazepine? So, so just remind me the context of this, this is after having severe withdrawal effects, you've gone back on benzo. So if you reinstated, in order to stabilize and now you're on a stable dose and you're asking what is the benefit and uh, risk of doing that? Well, or, and what could also be the case, which is kind of my case, is where you get to a certain point and it's kind of impossible for that point in time to taper and you decide to hold your dose for an X amount of time, but very long. Right, so of course I can't give individual medical advice, but talking about this in general, mm -hmm. So I, I sort of seen different views about holding. So in, in my view, I think holding often makes good sense. So my, I'll give you my, my sort of mental model for what, um, what the process of withdrawal looks like. It's an analogy I use in the book. Uh, not too, not too complicated. Do you know what the bends is? The bends is when people go deep sea diving. Oh yeah. And they come up to 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 um, sea level, and if they go up too quickly, they get something called decompression sickness, which is colloquial no, colloquially known as the bends, which is also a, a famous Radiohead song. Um, and and so what happens when you go deep sea diving is you go down to very high pressures at the bottom of the sea, and gas is pushed into your blood vessels, and as you come up, the pressure reduces and gas is released. And it can cause damage to your vessels and to your brain. And it, it's a very unpleasant experience 
called the bends, which involves headaches and dizziness and feeling sick. And so divers are told to come up slowly so that they don't disrupt the equilibrium that the gas is in too quickly. And if they come up slowly enough, it doesn't cause very bad symptoms. You know, they, they don't notice it. If they come up too quickly, the treatment is recompression. They don't chuck you back in the water, but they put you in a chamber where they simulate being back in, 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 in high pressured water. And when you feel stable again, they then reduce the pressure more slowly. So in other words, they reinstate and then taper. So the analogy is to being on a drug that exposes you to very, either very high levels of a, of a transmitter or, or increased effect of that transmitter. If you come off it too quickly, you, you get withdrawal effects because your brain and body are, are, you know, have to scramble to make sense of this huge drop in, in, in the drug levels. The treatment, if you get into trouble, often is reinstatement where you go back up to a higher level and then coming off more slowly. So, you know, that's in general what I think is happening. I don't know what the de you know, I don't know what the details are of if it's serotonin or it's it's GABA, but in general, what is happening is your brain and body have been asked to adapt to a changing level of these drugs much too quickly for it to it to handle. And in general, going back a few steps and coming off more slowly allows it to adapt more carefully, like people coming up from the bottom of the sea. Mm -hmm. So so in other words, if you get into trouble coming off too quickly, in general, and I know there are some, there's sort of a whole area of paradoxical reactions that's a, that's a, actually recurs a lot in, in my clinical work, putting that aside for one moment. Most okay. people, in my experience, when they reinstate, go back to a higher dose, their symptoms do settle out and then they wait until they feel well enough to come down again. I think that's totally sensible. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you go back in a recompression chamber, you don't straight away go, all right, you're back there, let's get you off because you're gonna end up in the same place you were before. So I think pausing and whatever processes were out of whack, time to settle before going down again makes sense. Mm -hmm. I know that people get very concerned about tolerance. They say, well, you're on the drug and, and, the, and, and time is ticking and you're gonna get worse and worse until you get off the drug. I think I think there's slightly um, I think there's a slight misinterpretation there because tolerance is a generally a slow process. Um, you become and, and it's also it's also there's ceiling effects. So um, so for example, uh, taking taking caffeine, if you've been drinking a cup of coffee every day for ten years, you don't get much more tolerant to it after another ten years. Mm. Most Tolerance happens in the first few weeks you're on the drug. So for benzodiazepines, I've just said most of the tolerance happens the first 12 weeks you're on the drugs. So if you're if you're on it for five years or six years, there's not a huge difference. In other words, if you end up holding on a benzodiazepine because you've had real trouble coming off, you come back to it and you stand up for another year and you've already been on it for 10 years, the tolerance that occurs is not going to be a huge effect compared to the first 10 years. You know what I mean? So I talk about it, you are paying a tolerance tax every 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 month you're on it, but that tax is going to be much less than the benefit you get from being back on the drug and stabilizing from withdrawal. So the the, the recompression effect, you know, mm. the stabilizing effect is going to be much bigger than the tolerance tax is my so I'm mixing I'm mixing up recompression and mm -hmm. no, it's great. This is a great it's explanation. Really, yeah. It's really good. You're really good at this. <laughs> it's, it's really good. <laughs> Okay, and so then Emma, you wanted to ask something to Mark. How how he's oh well, uh, yeah, no, that that was all really interesting, and also made me think about because I'm because like when you're polydrug, do you have to kind of think as well? Sometimes you've got to hold one, haven't you, for a bit, and then you've got to do another. And actually, I found it really good holding the gatiapine I'm on for a year because I couldn't even move it five percent. You know that even that was too much. And then so I, I held it and then I decided to do the benzo for a bit. And after a year, I've managed to taper the catiapine down with pretty much no symptoms um, until it, it, I'm on a very small dose. So it just proved to me that that holding really made a huge effect. Totally, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more, Emma. Yeah. So, so I, I think people hate holding because they sort of feel they're on a drug they're not, that's not good for them. They want to get off it. There's a lot of anxiety. But I think I've seen that a few times, including in myself. I have mm -hmm. held points for 
six months and nine months. And every time it's made a very big difference to my ability to taper the drug afterwards. Because I think whatever is going on under the hood, there's some irritation or there's yeah. some disruption and giving it time to settle down, you know, allows you, I, the, the thing I think about, sorry, I've got endless analogies because it's so abstract. Mm. I think about it like a sports injury. You know, if you, if you, if you, um, you know, whatever, break your leg or dislocate it, uh, if you go back to running too soon, you keep on re injuring, you keep on exacerbating the injury. So if you give it a good period of time to heal, when you come back to run on the track, you've got a strong leg again because it's healed. And I think that's what holding often does. It gives time for whatever injury irritation has occurred to just settle out. So now when you do it, you're running on a good leg. You know, it's easier to come off the quetiapine than, than, than endlessly irritating an already irritated, mm -hmm. in this case, brain. Yeah. So I think so. I, I, so I've done that. I found the same thing as you and a lot of people, a lot of patients I've seen who have held, things have stabilised. Uh, and they've been able to taper more easily afterwards. So I think it makes it often makes good sense. I think so. When you're in trouble, you know, it, my 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 advice is always to stop. You know, when you're getting into huge trouble, some people say I've got to go quicker to get off it. In general, I think that just tends to exacerbate people's problems, and it's better to yeah, hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> Emma and I would like to know how are you doing now? How am I doing? Uh, <laughs> right. Okay. Take, take off the tweed jacket. Go back to being a human being rather than. A, uh, I am, so I'm five years into my taper now. Um, I started off on five drugs. I started off on uh, escitalopram, metazapine, zolpidem, uh, methylphenidate, uh, Ritalin, uh, and, and a drug called Xyrem, which is the brand name for gamma hydroxybutyrate, which is used as a uh, sleeping drug in narcolepsy. So some of those drugs are prescribed for mental health conditions and some of them for narcolepsy and some of them for a bit of both because it became a bit of a, a mishmash. Uh, mm -hmm. What was almost certainly a prescribing cascade where one drug side effects led to other mm -hmm. drugs and other diagnoses, uh, easy to see in retrospect. Uh, and I am now down to two drugs. I'm on escitalopram and metazapine i'm on a tiny dose of escitalopram even by my standards i'm on 0 0.06 milligrams mm -hmm. and i will probably be off that all going well in the next couple of months or yes. um, <laughs> two metazapine i'm on 1.2 milligrams about which i find very hard to reduce i find that, yeah. that much much harder uh, I'm actually micro tapering that by a tiny amount. I think 0 0.006 milligrams a day using a micro pipette uh, and a dilution of the manufacturer's liquid. And I'm hoping to get off that in the next few months to a year. Uh, and I, I think sometimes people get a bit freaked out when they hear it took me five years. I did definitely, I have worked quite hard the last few years and that's made it a little bit more difficult for me to have space for withdrawal and I'm trying to work a little bit less hard for the next few months which I'm not very good at to try to get a bit of space to come off the last bits of the drug so mm -hmm. in general and and I guess sorry that's the the drug answer in general uh I feel in many ways like a completely different person um I still have I have withdrawal effects I still feel a bit foggy I feel a bit tired um but the main issue for me that's changed from being on all those drugs to where I am now is my ability to concentrate and, and remember things is, is completely transformed. I, I'm always like delighted with myself when I get a little like authentication code on my phone to sign into an email or, you know, or some new website. I can remember six digits because on five drugs five years ago, I could barely remember my, my friend's names. You know, I, I, wow. was, I was like yeah. a... You know, I was like a, I was like a bumbling idiot. So, mm -hmm. so, you know, as someone who, you know, has done academic work, you know, my mind is, is, you know, is my, is my life probably true for lots of people, but, but, but yeah, very, yeah, but definitely to have that capacity back, you know, makes, makes up for all the, all the pain of withdrawal, all the, all the issues just to have that clarity of mind back. And I'm hoping, you know, it may, may even improve further. Uh, you know, has made the whole thing, you know, worthwhile. Uh, 
And I also mm -hmm. think I'm much less emotionally labile. I'm much less flappable than I was. And I think that's because I sleep better and I, I can think a bit more clearly. So I feel, you know, I feel, I feel vastly improved already, not even being completely off the drugs, just by being on less of them. So oh that gives me hope that gives me hope because i'm still on 25 milligrams of atazapine and for me yeah. that one is really hard to move out of all of them even just a little crumb and i it's really bad that one but personally yeah. for me i mean it's different for everyone but yeah yeah i i, I agree i agree that i think that's been the hardest drug of, of all the ones i've been on to get off it's mm -hmm. the one i've done most slowly I think I started using it by, by dividing tablets, but very soon I got into using a liquid version of metazapine and I've ended up diluting it and even doing, you know, going back to my kind of PhD skills and mm -hmm. using micropipette. So that has been very hard to reduce. Uh, and, I, and I'm told people have a lot of trouble with insomnia with it coming off it. So yes. They prescribed it to me for the insomnia. Luckily, I didn't react well to it. So I, I think I was a week into the mirtazapine. I was like, this is not working. It's zombifying me as a, the catiapine as well. All these drugs they gave me that it didn't, I didn't like it. So I just got rid of it. And I'm so happy because apparently it's really hard to taper that. So actually, that's sorry, at the, at the risk of, of going over time here. Now, that's a really important point, which I also emphasize in the book, which is how to manage withdrawal effects, you know, specifically not to give extra medication unless there's no other option. Because mm. what happens is you get into this cycle of if you have withdrawal effects from one drug, you get given another drug, which itself causes physical dependence and withdrawal. And you sort of end up, you're jumping from, you know, the whatever, from the fire, from the frying pan into the fire, and you can end up on even more drugs. Um, so to me, you know, using that analogy of coming up from deep sea diving, withdrawal effects are a sign that you're going too fast for your body to handle, and you should take that you should take that feedback and go more slowly rather than try and conceal it with more drugs. So you know, the analogy is the light goes off on your dashboard saying you're out of fuel. You don't stick something on top of it to suppress the that signal. You you take the signal. It's telling you something important. And so, you know, again and again, to the point of being pretty repetitive and boring, we say, if the patient's having withdrawal effects, it's a sign to slow down, go back if you need to, and then go more slowly, not to add in more medications. Yes. Thank you so I... much. Thank you, both <laughs> of you. And we'll be in touch. Thank you for listening to the episode. Be well, be safe. Remember, it's not a race. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support, go to paypal.me slash